Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, I do not normally uh, repeat sermons uh, with the occasional exception of a story or illustration that I might use uh, along the way, but I have to confess to you that I have preached a number of different sermons uh, using the same title, which I'm doing today, that title namely being The Sermon on the Amount in part because uh, today's passage from Matthew chapter 6 comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, so it's kind of a little play on words, and in part because uh, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount have to do with uh, our money and with how we see our money, how we use our money in the context of our relationship with God, and because when Jesus says that wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be, what he's really saying to me is that I care about your money because I care about the condition of your heart. And with that, I do uh, recall some of the illustrations and stories that I have used uh, to illustrate uh, this point, just as uh, Jesus does that in the gospel today. Uh, like, for example, the one about the IRS agent who showed up unannounced at the church one day, asking the pastor if he could confirm uh, that a certain member had actually made a gift of $25,000 as he has claimed on his tax form. And without even checking the record, the pastor said to the agent, I can assure you that if he didn't, he will. <laughs> and then there was that little girl uh, who came out of worship one day and she handed her pastor a shiny new quarter that she was supposed to have put in the offering. But in her sweet little voice, she said to him, I want you to have this. And the self-important pastor looks down at her and, and he says to her, well, you know, that's very nice, but I don't need it. You can put it in the offering. To which she replied, but my daddy says you're the poorest pastor we've ever had. <laughs> Last time I told that story, I got like seven quarters after the uh, service was over. So wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be. And even though Jesus does use his own illustrations about moth and rust and lamps and eyes, and he tells his own stories known as parables, that simple statement really doesn't need a lot of extra explanation in order for us to understand what it it really means. And, uh, and so over the years, uh, I have simply said that the story of your life is written in two small books. One is your pocket calendar and one is your checkbook. Show me how you spend your time. Show me how you spend your money. I'll tell you what's important to you. I'll tell you what matters to your life, where your priorities really are. Today I would have to say, uh, show me your smartphone calendar and your online bank statement. Uh, given the fact that uh, over a third of your giving to the Lutheran Church of St. Andrew now happens electronically. But the point is basically the same. And so today, uh, while I don't have the time to cover all of the bases, I do want to dig into that very simple statement just a little bit and offer up to you uh, just a few biblical principles for the way that you and I as Christians are called to see our money and use our money in the context of our relationship with God. And I can tell you that if you trust in these principles and you put them into practice in your life, whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, 
It doesn't really matter. It will change your life, which I know is a grandiose statement, but it is true. And the first is that whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, how you see your money and how you use your money is first and foremost, above everything else in this whole world, a spiritual issue. Given the fact that about half of the parables of Jesus in the Gospels have to do with my money and my possessions in one form or another. Not to mention all the other passages in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, more than you might imagine. And it's also true that uh, when we think about our money, uh, it is uh, our nature, I think, to, to believe that uh, you know, what I do with my money is none of anybody else's business, except that the fact of the matter is that it's God's business. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that nobody can serve both God and money, both God and wealth. And so, you know, if I think that I can somehow separate my financial life from my spiritual life, then I obviously need to think again, because that simply is not true, at least not according to the Holy Scriptures. And then the second principle uh, that I want to share with you is the one that I find kind of difficult, and that has to do with settling the issue of ownership, which is to say that uh, I like to say to people that, you know, for example, I own my house, or at least I will when the mortgage is paid up. But the fact of the matter is, the theological reality is that I don't own that house. And I'm never going to own that house. Because God is the owner of the house. And God is the one who lets me live in the house. And he's the one that lets me pay for the house with the money that he gives to me through the income that I have on the basis of the work that I do that he enables me to do. In other words, it's all about him. It's all from him. It's all from his guiding hand. And I can say that because, again, the word of God says that the Lord is the one who gives me the power to earn wealth. The gold and the silver are mine, says the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, all of it. I mean, the, the whole smash, everything. And the point is that once I settle that, settle the issue of ownership and who all of this, everything in my life, really truly belongs to, then I begin to see all those things differently. And then I begin to treat them differently as my thinking begins to shift away from, you know, my house, my car, my money, my this, my that, to the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, everything else. And I begin to ask my quest myself questions like, wow, you know, how am I going to live in this house to the glory of God? Where does he want me to travel in order to run his errand? I was talking to our missionary intern, Mangesha, <laughs> Uh, just literally the other day, and he talked about you know, how grateful he was to have a car that is large enough for him to bring five children to St. Andrew for our outreach ministry on Saturday afternoon. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Does that mean you can't go on vacation? No. 
It doesn't mean that you can't go on vacation. It just means that when you go on vacation, you ask yourself, how can I glorify God and find refreshment and His presence and renewal in my time? In other words, is my life really about honoring the owner, or am I storing up treasures for myself here on earth? I mean, what really is the deal here? And then the third uh, principle has to do with honoring God by using a portion of our resources, our money, as a way of worshiping God, the owner. Whenever I teach classes on Christian worship and why we do the things that we do in our service, uh, much of which dates back many centuries, some all the way back to Jesus himself, I like to say that the offering is not a pause in the worship. It's not the seventh inning stretch in the service. It's not, oh, the sermon's finally over. You know, now it won't be long now. No, the offering is actually, it's like the prayers. It's like the confession. It's literally part of our worship. And, and so that's why we say we worship the Lord with our tithes and our offerings, a tithe being a 10% or one-tenth of all our income, which is the biblical model of giving that you can read about in the book of Malachi, and our offerings being gifts that we make uh, in addition to or on top of that tithe. We worship the Lord with our tithes and offerings. But I also like to say, you know, that uh, if you practice tithing, you got to know that it's not like, you know, you give God 10% and then 90% is for me. I can do whatever I want with that. No. The tithe of the offering is a first fruits offering to God as an acknowledgement that all of it is his. All of it comes from him. The whole smash, 100%. And then I use the other 90% also to glorify him in my life by paying the mortgage, by driving the car, by serving my family, by taking care of my children, by doing good works, by fulfilling my vocation. Uh, will tithing save you? No, it will not save you. Only. Jesus will save you. Is it a law? No, it is not a law. It is a model for giving. Uh, can your tithe go to uh, more than one God-honoring recipient or option? Yes, it can, although I think the treasurer's heart just skipped a beat somewhere in the room. But it is true. And it is the offering fundamentally about the church budget, about getting money to do what we do here at St. Andrew? In truth, the answer to that question is no, it is not, <clears throat> even though all that does happen. But at the end of the day, this really is not about the $17,000 a month mortgage payment that we make on this house. It is fundamentally not about the $70,000 a year that we pay to Pepco to heat and cool and light this place for our ministry and our worship. It's not about that, although you see how I just snuck that into the sermon? <laughs> because what it's fundamentally about, what it's first of all about, before anything, is your relationship with God. It's about the priorities of your life. It's about what matters. It's about the Sermon on the uh, Mount. 
and the fact that where your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be, which brings me to my fourth principle, and that is that it, when it comes to the way we use our money, and this is what Jesus is really talking about here in Matthew chapter 6, that even though there are sometimes exceptions to this, for the most part, most of the time, it's really all about who or what you love. Parents know this because you fork over all kinds of money for your children. You know, for their lessons, for their uniforms, for their braces, their travel, their electronics, their toys, their education, their weddings, and all kinds of other things as well. If you give to your alma mater, you know this. People know this who give to a variety of causes that they really believe in, that's in their heart. And that's why St. Paul says to the Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver, which is really good of God, because quite frankly, I would settle for a grouchy one. <laughs> hey! But I also know this because I see it. And I see it in you, in people who make sacrificial gifts of time and of treasure for the ministry of Jesus Christ right here in this community of faith. I see it all the time. And I feel it myself because, you know, I love this place. I love what God is doing in this place. And so often, even now, you know, I'll walk through this hallway to heaven and I, and I will look around or, or I'll go, as I did literally just yesterday, into the great room and find a room full of kids playing soccer. Or I'll see people coming and going, serving, working, supporting each other, carrying out the work of Christ. And I still stop and think to myself, no. They didn't have to do this. I mean, nobody made them do this but they did it. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be. And so Patty and I are delighted to be able to give our children's inheritance to the work of our congregation. Because it really, at the end of the day, is about who or what you really love. And so when you think about these principles and you believe in them and you trust them and you put them into practice, I can tell you absolutely your life will change. Your priorities will change. And the way you look at things and treat things will change. And uh, it is a guarantee. Not because things will get easier for you. They will just get better for you. When you live and order your life around the owner of everything, our source of supply, the lover and the giver of all. Last uh, Wednesday, as you may know, our nation marked the 18th anniversary of 9-11, and for reasons that I can't fully describe or explain to you, I went into the file and I pulled out uh, the file uh, about the ministry of St. Andrew and the things that we did in the aftermath of the attack, and in that file was a copy of the sermon that I preached uh, on the Sunday uh, after 9-11. And I want to share a, a part of it with you today because it happens to dovetail with uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, this passage from Matthew uh, chapter 6. And uh, so 
Maybe I do repeat my sermons after all, but uh, here's a portion of what I said on September 16, 2001. I come here today not to repaint the pictures of the horrific events of last Tuesday or, or of our country's future victory over terror. Instead, I come here to point you in the midst of a national crisis to the cross of Christ and to a picture of God's presence in your life and to invite all of us to remember that what matters most in the end is not your 401k. It is not my upward mobility or my success or even my pleasure. Because the only thing that any of us are going to have in the end, the only thing that no one can ever take away when everything else is taken away is the kingdom of God that is within you. It is the peace that passes all understanding. It is your relationship with God. It's the only thing that can ultimately survive when the walls are crashing in. And, and I want to say to you that if you have been living out your Christianity only to the extent that it poses no inconvenience to your secular lifestyle and no conflict with your personal schedule, I invite you to get the picture of what it's really like to live your life as a servant of God. And if there's something intruding on your ability to do that, maybe it's time for that thing to be moved or thrown away. Because Billy Graham put it best last Friday when in his sermon to the nation, he said that when all the debris is removed from those buildings, we will find that the foundation is still there. And then I continued, and in just that way, when life comes crashing in for all of us, the only thing that will matter is whether your life was built on that one foundation. And I come here today, like on no other day, to tell you that your foundation is Jesus Christ and a love and a hope that is strong enough and it is powerful enough to remain in our souls even after this house and every house will have crumbled into the dust. That's what I said on that day. That's what I'm saying today. And the reason I'm saying it to you is that our Savior loves us enough to talk about our money and our possessions because he cares about the tradition, condition of our hearts. And because of the best news of all, and it is this, his treasure, his priority, the thing he values more than anything else is you. And because he does, he gave, not just a little bit, not just 10%, but 100%. He gave everything he has for our joy, for our comfort, for our forgiveness, for our freedom, and for our life with him here on earth and someday in heaven. Come what may, so that you and I can cheerfully and joyfully receive what God has given us, give it right back to him for the glory of God, for the joy of your life and for the hope of the world. And that's the Sermon on the Amount. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.